raised from the dead. He demonstrated his power over death, hell, and the grave. Amen? You know what's beautiful about that? Just like that song said, he's given us resurrection power. We've been made new in him. And uh, thank the Lord for the hope that that gives. Paul tells us that if we didn't have the resurrection, we wouldn't have hope. Jesus would have just been somebody else that died. Hard to even imagine that, but the demonstration of the fact that he was resurrected and he was raised Savior and Lord gives us a clear demonstration that he wasn't just another man. Thank God for the resurrection. It brings hope. Amen? Would you turn with me to Matthew 20, chapter 27? Oh, my goodness gracious. When you start to have an Easter sermon or you're going to talk about the resurrection, the life, death of Jesus, that's hard to narrow that scope. I mean, where do you go? What do you leave out? What do you focus on? It's so broad. And uh, I feel like the Lord gave me some things to look at that may not be the things that we would normally look at. Um, But I'm going to start off by reading in Matthew chapter 26. So if you would, turn to Matthew 26. I'm going to start with verse 14. <clears throat> and one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. That does not sound very exciting, does it? Well, it's a starting place. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 30 pieces of silver. <clears throat> Lord God, I just pray that you would guide our thoughts to your God, guide the words that are spoken today. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we move through this sermon, dear God. Lord, let the words touch our hearts exactly the way. Let it be like seed, dear God, that lands in receptive soil. And God, we pray that you would be blessed uh, by all that's said and all that transpires in our hearts. God, I pray that you would, um, Lord, when we walk out of this place today, that we won't be the same. Something would have changed in our hearts. And God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What, what's amazing about this passage is that it's that 30 pieces of silver. So today in this sermon, what we're going to look at are certain elements or pieces that had a part of this crucifixion story. Just by the nature of what we're going to be communicating, we're going to touch on the life of Jesus. We're going to touch on the death of Jesus. We're going to touch on his resurrection. But we're going to do that from the framework of looking at different elements that took part of this thing. The first thing that we're going to look at is this 30 pieces of silver. And let's background just a little bit. From the scriptures, we learn that in Genesis, the scripture talks about the creation and God creating this beautiful, amazing planet. Uh, today, I mean, we're, we're experiencing spring. We are experiencing the newness of life. We're seeing all the beauty that's out there. 
But this planet is an amazing home in a very specific place in our solar system in an enormous universe that blows our minds more than we can even really comprehend. But God created mankind, Adam and Eve, and then Adam and Eve, we know the story that Adam and Eve sinned. Of all of creation that God had given him, that beautiful garden to live in with all its lushness and an environment that we probably can't even grasp or understand right now. Interactions with the animals. It said that God brought the animals to him and Adam named the animals. You know, we don't have deer run when they see us. There's other animals that would probably eat us if they came on. But I'm not looking to be lunch for somebody. I'm looking to go to lunch today, not be lunch. But there was just a whole different kind of paradise environment. And of all of that creation, the one stipulation, the one rule that God gave Adam and Eve, do not do this, do not eat of this tree, this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know how the story plays out, that, that uh, there was deception involved, that Satan came in the form of a serpent and, and deceived Eve, and Adam just readily went right along. And just to set the story straight, a lot of people point the finger at Eve. And the reality is that God told Adam not eat of the tree of the garden. And it was through Adam that sin was accounted to mankind, not through Eve's uh, eating. of. And it doesn't mean that it wasn't sin for her to do that. But the reality is Adam was responsible for that. <clears throat> but because of their sin, now all of mankind has been affected by that. But right there at the very beginning, at that tragic story of the fall of mankind, entering into a sinful uh, lifestyle and then also losing that intimacy of fellowship with God, God spoke into that situation and said that there would come a day when her seed, Eve's seed, would, would crush the head of the serpent. And if we read in our Bible, when we look at that word seed there, a descendant of, it doesn't have just a small S. It's got a capital S there. The reason being that seed was not just talking about that someday mankind is going to crush the serpent's head. No, it's talking about there is a seed, a specific seed. And that word seed there is pointing towards the day when Jesus would come and would undo that infection, that virus that had been sent throughout all of humanity God would come, he would send his son as, if I can use computer terms, as the antivirus and set things back in order the way it's supposed to be so that the earth and the people on the earth can function the way God intended for us to function so that we can do the works that God intended for us to do. But right there at the very beginning, God set things in motion that the day would come when Jesus would walk the earth. The scripture is full of stories about Jesus and his miraculous life here on the earth. How he went about challenging the norm with regards to the religious environment of the day. How he challenged those religious leaders and told them that they needed to get things back in line with God's purpose. Jesus' message was repent. Repent, change, turn. For the kingdom of God is at hand. There's an establishing of a new order. Things are coming into place. It's not just that you get to do what you want to do the way that you want to do it, but God has an order and a plan and, and guidelines for how to live your life, and it's not to hurt you, but it's to help you, to keep you from inflicting pain and hurt on yourself and inflicting pain and hurt on the others around you. Jesus was coming to set things back into line. 
What's interesting when you look at Jesus' life is that, that, and it's not because he, he uh, that, that actually he had more conflict with the religious leaders than he did with people who didn't know him, that people were living lifestyles that maybe uh, we might disapprove of. Because he knew that the people that didn't know God needed a physician. They needed help. But the people who should have known God and should have been living the way they were supposed to, that they had, had fallen into just religion and they were measuring themselves based on their performance. You know, what's amazing about that is, and, and we'll come to this a little bit later on, but we sing all kinds of songs about the, we sing songs about the old rugged cross and how, how amazing it is. And uh, Jesus talked about our religious attempts to please him. And he said those things are like filthy rags. They're filthy rags. Look, and, and it's not because it is good to endeavor to live a good life. There's nothing wrong with that. But the reality is if we're trying to measure ourselves or base our acceptance by God on our religion or, or that type of performance, we will never reach God. We will never attain to the purpose and plan of God. The reality is... Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life on this earth. And then he gave his life on our behalf. He stepped and substituted his life for ours. And it is by his righteousness, by his goodness, that we have right to be in relationship with God. Not because somehow we lived a few weeks and got it right for a while and maybe God will accept us now. That's not the way it happens. It's because of the way Jesus lived his life. He substituted himself for us. He took our sin. He paid our price. Our indebtedness was placed on him. So let's come back at this. And, and again, Jesus lived a perfect life on the earth. He went around doing good. He challenged the religious leaders. He loved people that were in need of him. He opened blind eyes. He raised the dead. He healed people that were sick. He went around doing good to all those people that, that, that came to him. It's an amazing life. And I, if you haven't, let me just tell you, you need to go back and, and uh, can, can I just say this? If you're living your life and you've never picked up God's word and never taken time to read the Bible, there's way too much important things in this Bible for you to miss it. Okay? Years and years and years of wisdom have been laid up here in this book. It's too much to be just disregarded. If, you, if you're a believer and you're not reading your Bible, you need to be reading your Bible. If you have not yet received the Lord as your Savior, I want to encourage you, if you need some guidance, just ask for some guidance. There's people around here that'll be glad to talk to you. And we can give you some areas that, that, that you can go in and, and read and kind of get an understanding of what's going on. Just, just in, I'm going to give you this just because I feel prompted to do so, but if you go in and, and want to learn about the life of Jesus, read the book of Luke, okay? Read the book of Luke because Luke was a doctor, and he wanted to create an orderly account of the life of Jesus. So even though he wasn't one of the disciples walking around with Jesus, Luke following that like the next generation, he was alive at the time of Jesus, he just didn't know Jesus while Jesus was alive, but he wanted to have an orderly account of the life of Jesus. So he went around and interviewed people who had been with Jesus and firsthand accounts and compiled the, the book of Luke guided by the Holy Spirit 
And he put the book of Luke together to tell the story of Jesus. The book of Matthew is very similar, and, but it was geared towards a, a Jewish audience. Uh, I think Mark was on adrenaline almost when he was writing. He must have been a coffee drinker like me. But, I mean, because when you read the book of Mark, he says, and suddenly they went there, and immediately they did this, and then they did this, and you feel like, oh, my goodness, they're, they're running everywhere. But it, it's a 16-chapter book, but it just seems like it's really moving along. And, uh, and John uh, does a lot of teaching in it. It's a great book, and I'd encourage you to read that too. But if you just need a starting point, start with the book of Luke because it tells the story of Jesus. It's, it's, uh, it, it's a, a great opportunity. If you want to go beyond that and see what was happening with the early church after Jesus, the book of Acts was written by Luke too. There are really two volumes, volume one, volume two, the, the book of Luke, and then the book of Acts. And that's probably more information that you wanted right now, but that's free. So, anyhow, let's get back to this. Jesus lived an amazing life. And then we come to this scripture that we read. We know that Jesus chose 12 to walk with him. There's one that stood out of that 12, and not for a good reason. We find that Judas was very concerned about what was going on with the treasury, what's going on with the money. And uh, we judge Judas as though he was trying to get rid of Jesus. But I don't know that that was necessarily the case. I think what he was trying to do was to force Jesus' hand. Um, if you look at the different accounts of what happened with Judas, and, and there, there is more than one, what we read about said, and one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? And so they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So Judas, one of the inner circle of Jesus, one of those that Jesus had trusted. You can even see that on the Last Supper, when Jesus is gathered together with his disciples in the upper room, Jesus knew exactly what was going on. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. And Judas takes off and he goes to the chief priests and he... he he asked them, what would you give me? And do you know what that, that price was? 30 pieces of silver. Now, it's hard to really gauge how much 30 pieces of silver is worth today. <clears throat> but basically, what 30 pieces of silver equates to, if you go back, to the, the, the relevance of that number is if you go back to Exodus chapter 21, you find, let me see the verses, Exodus uh, 21 and 32 you find out that in that book it specifies that if someone if something happens and someone's slave is killed then you have to pay that master 30 pieces of silver so the price that was set on jesus's head the price for the, the betrayal literally was the same price that was offered for the death of a slave so basically, he was valued, they valued him the same way that someone would have valued a slave. And that's the price, that was the valuation that was set on the head of the king of kings, the lord of lords, this one who had walked the earth and done good. Had performed all those miracles. He was given a slave's price. How much, what's a, a life worth to you? 
What, what price would you put on someone's head? There's some people that we, I mean, just because of our humanity, we might say, well, that person's worth more than this person. We're not just talking about their bank account. You know, there's some people that it's easy for us to pass over or dismiss. We don't like their attitude. We don't like the way they live. We don't like... I'm thankful that God doesn't use the same type of valuation. You know, we're told that Jesus would have gone to the cross if it had just been you. Jesus would have gone to the cross if it would just have been me. Now, I, 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 don't, I don't know that I can personally agree with, I don't see myself as worthy of that. But that's the kind of love that he has for us. And here, this inner circle person, this person that was so close to Jesus that had walked with him and experienced the thing, he had seen the same miracles. He had seen the same demonstration of the power of God. But yet, he was willing to trade his friend, to trade his master to trade his teacher and his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And it, the story continues, and it says that in, in chapter 27, it said, early in the morning, this is after they came and they took Jesus. It says, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. So the reason why I'm telling you that it may not be that Jesus was anticipating that Jesus was die was going to die, we see that over in, in verse 26 was where he set the, uh, they set the price. Here in, verse, in chapter 27, it says that the chief priests and elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Jesus, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Some people say that they believe that what Judas was really trying to do was he was just getting a little bit frustrated with Jesus' timeline. I mean, all the Jewish nation was looking for a day when there would be a Messiah to come that would free the Israelite people from the bondages they were in under the rule of the Roman Empire. They were looking for a political leader. They weren't looking necessarily for a spiritual healer and a spiritual redemption. They were looking for someone to set them free from their oppression. And all of a sudden, Judas begins to see that what's happening is not that somehow Jesus is being challenged into a position to where he's revealing who he is as the leader and the Messiah, but now these leaders are binding him and committing him to death. And Judas responds and says that I have sinned for I've betrayed innocent blood. What is this to us? The chief priests responded. They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself, it says. And then you have the chief priests go and they pick up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this money. Where'd the money come from? Came from them. The money that came from them, they paid the price to Judas. And when Judas brings the very same money back, they said, it's against the law to put this money into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That's why it's been called the field of blood, Ekeldama, to this day. 
Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy a plot, uh, the potter's field as the Lord commanded. So the money that Judas had received from the chief priest, he tries to throw it back to them, and then they say, this, this is dirty money. This is blood money. We're going to go out and buy a, a field where we can bury, bury uh, the foreigners. The price of a dead slave was put on the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Something else I want us to look at. Let's go to, let's go to John chapter 19. <clears throat> John chapter 19. And we'll, look, we'll begin with verse 16. In John chapter 19, there's a, a very quick... Uh, rendering or telling of jesus's crucifixion there's not a whole lot there's a whole lot of detail that's passed through very quickly right here and look there's a lot that we could have spent time with today and obviously we don't have time to go through it all so i'm not going there about jesus's trial and him going before herod and he's going before the 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 leaders of the children uh, of the people of israel and he's going before um before Pilate, we're not going to take time to do that. Uh, there's movies out there. You can hear that every Sunday. But we're looking at some of the pieces that were a part of this, some of the elements that were a part of this. So look at, at verse, we're going to start with verse 16. And, and just very quickly, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, read through verse 24. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic called Golgotha, the place of the skull, where they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. They wanted to make sure that everybody around there had the ability to read the sign. In Aramaic, which was really the, the language that was commonly used in Israel at the time. Um, they used Aramaic predominantly, Latin, and then Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers crucified Jesus. They took his clothes and divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. Anyhow, this, this happened to fulfill the scripture, which is found in, in Psalm uh, 69. They divided my garments among them, casting lots for my clothing. Let's just take a moment, just look at, at a few things here. First, we looked at the 30 pieces of silver. But I just want to talk to you just a little bit about the nails. What's interesting me about those nails, and if you go back and you look historically, they, they have actually found skeletons that still have the nails of crucifixion embedded in them, embedded in the ankles, and the, the scars in the bones where there, there were piercings in there. Sometimes people were crucified with their arms tied around a cross. Sometimes they were crucified with them being nailed to the cross. 
And a lot of times they would anchor the, the, the ankles with nails to the cross. But they've actually found nails still in bones that, that were buried. And they say that commonly those nails would have been about five to seven inches and probably about three-eighths of an inch, about like a pinky finger, uh, my pinky finger, um, uh, in, in diameter. You know what's amazing to me about those nails? M- nails can be used for so many creative things. There's so many amazing and beautiful things that could be done with nails. And yet, the very, the very material that a nail comes from had to be mined from the earth. That mean, meant that somewhere man, men discovered ore in the ground, and then they processed that ore out of the ground. You know where the source of that ore was? You know where the ore came from? God put it in the ground. The very nails that were fashioned and forged and created to be able to put Jesus on the cross, God put that deposit in the ground. Knowing well in advance that his own son would be nailed to a cross with those nails. That's amazing to me. That every piece and every part that came together to get Jesus to that cross to bring redemption and salvation to us, God made the materials available to men so that his plan could be carried out. Jesus did not, God did not kill Jesus on the cross. It was man's sinfulness it was man's rebellion. It was man's hard-heartedness that took him there. But, G- but God provided the materials, and man acted it out. And, and, and even in Psalm 20, 22, I mean, if you, let's turn to Psalm 22 real quick. Speaking of this, this is 1,000 years beforehand, 1,000 years beforehand, there's an amazing chapter in Psalm 22. And we won't, for, the, for time, won't, won't go back and read it. But 1,000 years before Jesus ever died on the cross, this was written. If you're familiar with the story of the cross, Jesus on the cross cries out at one time, Eloi, 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 lala sabachthani. I got through that pretty good. But he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? 1,000 years before he died, Psalm 22 starts out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, so far from the words of my groaning? King David, 1,000 years before Jesus died, penned these these very words that were prophetic in speaking of a day when Jesus himself would have to die. Look at, verse, uh, look at verses 14 through 16. He says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My, ha- my heart is turned to wax within, and it is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. It says, dogs have surrounded me. People were hurling insult and accusation and mocking him on the cross. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count on my bones. People stare and gloat at me. Over a thousand years before Jesus hung on the cross, David prophetically penned those words speaking about the the crucifixion of Jesus. 
who would be one of his descendants, one of his lineage. And it was fulfilled again a thousand years later when Jesus hung on the cross. So those nails pierced his hands, those nails pierced his feet, but there was a wooden cross that he hung on. I understand, I don't know how many of you, how many of you have seen the, the movie The Passion of the Christ? Have you seen that? Anybody seen that? I, I remember going down to the movie theater and watching that here in town, and that's one of those movies where when it finished, everybody just walked out quiet. Where I was, I don't know about where you were, but it was just quiet because everybody was just really in shock of what, what we had just seen. <clears throat> I watched that whole movie except for one scene. I had to close my eyes and turn my head. And that's when they had Jesus and they had the flail and they were ripping the flesh from his body. Because that cat of nine tails was not just a whipping. It wasn't just a rope. It wasn't just a, a leather strap. It was leather straps with pieces of metal or bone in it. And they, they were designed to be able to, when it would slap against the flesh, it would embed in the flesh. And then they would pull it back and rip the flesh and tear the flesh from his body. I know I'm being gory. <clears throat> but when that scene came up, I could not watch it. I had to turn my head away to see Jesus suffering like that. I don't understand. I'm, I'm going off track here, but to see the kind of abuse that Jesus took through that, that movie and then to know that he hung up there on that cross and while he's up on that cross, he looked at those people that were mocking him and mistreating him and and belittling him and making fun of him. Oh, you're the son of God. You, why don't you do something about this? Why don't you get yourself down off of that cross? And, and all that that they were saying to him and that he would look down from them. I don't know what your response would be, but he would look down on them and say, Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't understand. They don't understand what's going on here. They don't understand the big picture, God. They're judging based on their perspective. They're judging based on the hardness of their hearts, dear God. They've been afflicted with sin, God. They've been ingrained with bias. They don't understand what's going on. Father, would you forgive them? Because they, they, know, know they know not what they do. They don't, they don't get it, God. They don't understand it. But they will. So let this process continue. Jesus suffered with all the feeling that we would suffer. And preceding that, he said, God, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, Lord, then let, can we, is there another way? But then knowing that there was no other way, but that he shed his blood, that he died on that cross, he said, but Father, not my will, but your will be done. If, if this has to be, then God, I give myself to the suffering. I give myself to the pain. I give myself to the ridicule. I give myself to death on their behalf, on my behalf, and on your behalf. And you know, if we... I don't know how many of you work with wood and have made things out of wood. I took wood shop when I was in high school, and that's no, no grand feat. But through the years, I, I do know this about wood, that when you work with wood, it's important to take that plane 
and take off those rough edges and to, I got a splinter in my finger right now, but to take off those hard places and to take off those little things that are sticking up that if you'd rub your hand over, you could take a walk, take a stroll down that boardwalk of the beach barefooted, you better be careful. Anybody ever got a splinter in your foot, got a splinter in your hand and understand the pain that's there? So we take a plane and we take anything that's standing up out of the way and we take sandpaper and we take a coarse sandpaper and we sand off anything that might be offensive and we try to get it as smooth as possible and then we come back and we take a finer sandpaper and we work that wood and then a lot of times we'll put stain or polyurethane or anything or something over it to coat it and what we're not wanting to do we're not wanting the wood to be affected where we're not so we're not wanting people to get splintered by coming in contact with what we're working on i don't want that to happen i don't want it to happen to me and i don't want it to happen to anybody else they didn't take that kind of care in making a cross that that flayed back that jesus had when he was nailed up to the cross, it was a rough cut piece of wood with splinters and, 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 and aspects of it that would grab his back and tear it and, and cause terrible discomfort and pain. When you, when you go back and you study about the cross, they found all different kinds of ways that they crucified people. You know, apparently the, the crucifixion was first used over in Persia and then it was adopted by the Greeks and the Greeks brought it over from there after Alexander the Great went over there and conquered Persia little history lesson he came, he brought crucifixion back isn't that great and then it was adopted by the Romans and the Romans perfected it it became an art form to them of of persecution and and killing you you've how many of you remember the Kirk Douglas movie Spartacus you know, I don't know how many of the younger people wouldn't say that. There's a movie, Spartacus, where Spartacus was someone who led a slave revolt in, in Rome. And it was, a, you know, two-thirds of the Roman Empire at one time were enslaved. Two-thirds of the Roman Empire were enslaved from all the different nations that they had conquered. Spartacus led this huge revolt against the Roman, the Roman government, and, but he was captured. And in that revolt, on the road leading to Rome, they crucified 6,000 slaves. And the way the Roman mindset was that someone that was crucified, they did not want them to contaminate the ground, so a lot of times they would leave that body hanging up there. They wouldn't take the body down. They would just leave it up there. They didn't want the ground to be contaminated by the flesh, so they left it there. This, Sorry, this is gory and gross, but they would let the birds of the air eat it, or they would let, when the body began to decay, they would just let animals eat whatever was left. So it was intended to be a shock thing to people. How dare you defy our authority? How dare you defy, defy the empire of Rome? And so they made an example, and everybody, they didn't, they didn't hide it somewhere. It was out on the main thoroughfares to make people aware of it. What are, you know, I don't want to go back in time and live back then. But a lot of times what they would do, they would take and this, the, the vertical post of a cross a lot of time would stay fixed in the ground. I know this may be different than some of what you've heard or what you've seen, but a lot of times the vertical post was left fixed in the ground. Sometimes they would just use that central post and they would nail someone to the cross this way 
Sometimes the ankles were nailed this way onto the side of the cross. There's all kinds of things about the cross that tell you the truth. I was doing some study in it, and I don't even want to talk to you about it because it's gruesome and gross, and it was repulsive to me. So I don't want to go there, okay? But we do know that there are various different times. I haven't given you the worst of it. But there were various times. Sometimes the arms were crucified out like this. Sometimes they were tied over. There was ropes over a, a cross beam. And uh, sometimes there was like an X. There were different type of ways that they did this. They had all different kind of ways. And when there was a re- the rebellion in 70 AD in Jerusalem, they said that those that were tasked with, with the punishing the Jewish people, that they almost laughingly crucified Jewish people in all different kinds of ways, upside down and all kinds of things, just to make a mockery like they were having fun with it. Folks, we're talking about a culture and a society back then that was so hardened by war and blood and violence. It wasn't sending a missile from a drone flying somewhere high up in the sky and it exploding over there, only viewed on a digital screen or something like that. It was sword and spear and right there in front of one another, hand-to-hand combat. We live in a much more pacified and, you know, almost sanitized, unless you're out there on the battlefield. I'm not taking away from that. It's still hard. But for most of us, it's just a TV blurb. We see it in even entertainment. It's just a movie. But folks, that death and dying is real. That cross that Jesus hung on was an old rugged cross. We make songs about it and we sing joyfully about the old rugged cross. But let me tell you, it was no cakewalk. It was a rugged that chafed his back, and he hung there on our behalf. Again, in in Luke chapter 23, in verse 34, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Do you know the, the word for cross or for crucify is where we get the word excruciating? The cruce in there is from the cross because of the... It was considered one of the worst forms of torture, the worst form of death. Yet that's what Jesus endured for us. Some people say that, you know, they hung up there on the cross and then they bled to death and everything like that. We should all know by now it wasn't even the bleeding that caused someone to die, but it was the asphyxiation. They actually just slowly, slowly ebbed away because they weren't getting enough, enough oxygen. They just could not get themselves to the point if they would have to raise themselves up on those nails in their ankles in order to open up their lungs enough to be able to get a little breath. But after a while, the lungs and the legs just became so fatigued that they couldn't do it anymore. There's an account of a couple that were crucified, and it took 10 days for them to die. It was a, a gruesome, hideous, intended to be torturous. And again, that, that was used over and over again. Jesus hung there on the cross, and when he had fulfilled the last piece of prophecy, a very uh, a piece of prophecy that talked about him having vinegar or gall offered to him, he said that he, he talked about having thirst in order to fulfill the last piece, and they offered to him on a sponge that to drink, and he, he, he turned away from it. And then it said, and he, he, he said, it is finished. And he breathed his last. Everything that had to be done, every piece of the puzzle that had to be put in place, everything that had to be paid on our behalf, he said, it is finished. He sealed it. You know, it talks about there being garments that were were left. 
If, when you read the account, when you read through the full account, you find out that, that Jesus, of course, was captured and he was brought there and sent on trial and then he was stripped down and they flogged him and then they put a robe on him to mock him, to make him look kingly. And then they took him out before the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Jewish people or the people that were standing out there bringing accusation against him. And they saw him in that robe and they said, crucify him, crucify him. They saw that mockery and everything like that. And then it says that they stripped the royal robe off and put his clothes back on him. So this bloodied body of Jesus, again, received these clothes. And then it says that those soldiers, probably a team of four, because that's the way they had a team of four people that would go out and crucify when, when someone was going to be crucified. And then they would sit there, and they were required to stay there until that, that person actually died. They, there had to be somebody there to make sure that they truly died. But it says that that four took his garments and divided them up among themselves. I don't understand that. These garments had just been on the back of somebody who was bloodied and beaten and everything, but these soldiers divided those garments up among themselves, divided into four parts, so that they could keep them. What do you do? What, what, what would you do with that? <clears throat> Except for one garment. It said that there was one garment that was, had no seam in it. And they say, let's not tear that up. We're going to take and cast lots for that. And so they cast lots for his garment. Why? Why did they cast lots for his garment? There was a prophecy from years before. Again, over a thousand years before, God had a plan in motion. God knew what was going to happen to his son. It was prophesied a thousand years before in, in the Psalms that, that Jesus' garment, I think it was in, in Psalm uh, 69. Don't quote me on that yet. 22.18, thank you very much. 22.18, that they cast lots for his garments. And so there are those soldiers, without even realizing, in their own selfishness, gambling to have that garment, were fulfilling prophecy. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> look, there's one, one more thing I want us to look at, and then we're going to just share the Lord's Supper. You know, when they... I knew a precious lady who lived a very long life. Some of you knew her too. But she came to the last, the last of her years and had a medical situation that caused her to go into the hospital. And when she was in the hospital, her relatives went ahead and took everything out of her home sold them, distributed them, so she had no home to go back to. And this lady who was loving, bubbly, some of you may be knowing who I'm talking about, when there was no place for her to go to, her will to live left also. And it wasn't long after that when she went to be with the Lord. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, you know, they... they they stripped the people down to mock them and, and they took all of Jesus' clothes with the intention that he would never need clothes again. They were never expecting him to need those clothes again. So when they divided up his garments, they're saying, there's no hope. It's over. This is the end. He's done. He's gone. There's one more piece to the puzzle here of these, 
elements that were a part of the process of Jesus' death and resurrection, and that is that, that stone, that big old stone. And just for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into it but, but really deeply. You know, when they, after Jesus had died, and I'm not going to go through all the details about the confirmation of his death, but when they took him and put him in that grave... They rolled that big stone in front of that grave, in that grave. Why? Because it was over. It was done. They were sealing up the tomb. His body is just a shell now. It's all over. Matter of fact, the leaders got a little scared, and they said, look, we don't want his disciples coming and stealing the body. Can we do something about it? Can't, can't you seal that? And so they took and put seals on there. And the declaration was, if anybody breaks this seal, they will lose their life. But we're told that there's another side to the story, and that is that God had a whole other plan. And we're told about an angel that came. He came down there, and that angel, though he startled the Roman soldiers, and they were in shock and, and, and feared for their lives when that angel came. And that angel came there and said, look, this stone is in the wrong place. And he takes that stone and he rolls that stone out of the way. He gets that stone out of there so that the risen Jesus could come back, come back out and, and come out of that, that tomb. And life filled that body. Jesus fulfilled his purpose. And then God, by the resurrection, confirmed that Jesus had been set in place as both Lord and as king, as savior and as king. It is finished. Sin may have separated mankind from God, but God built a bridge through the cross of Jesus Christ. Sin may have separated mankind from God, but Jesus laid down his life. He gave, gave his life for us so that we could live in his, through his life. There's a powerful passage. I'm going back to Psalm chapter 22, chapter 22 and I'm going to finish with this, and then we're going to have, have communion. Listen to this, again, prophecy from a thousand years before Jesus' death and his resurrection. <clears throat> But it says in verse 26 of Psalm 22, The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise Him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and return to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before Him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship all who go down to the dust. That's all who would one day die, will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity or literally our children, okay? Posterity or our children will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. Amen? He has done it. It's complete. Everything that needed to be in place for our restoration and our reconciliation to God, our being brought back in relationship to him, everything that needed to be put in place has been finished. He 
has done it. Amen.